Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. During this time of social distancing, we realized that a lot of our favorite authors and artists would not be able to promote their new books by touring and by being in rooms of people of more than 10. We've spoken with incredible creators of middle grade and YA and graphic novels and picture books, and we're really excited to share this with you. Please enjoy this slight deviation from our regular content, and remember to buy from your local independent bookstores. We continue our series today with author Jarrett Krasowska. Hello, Jarrett. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're so excited to talk to you about, you know, everything that you're working on, but the one thing that I wanted to start off with because it really personally helped me out so much was your Draw Every Day with JJK. Anyway, back when everything kind of hit the fan with a pandemic and kids got pulled out of school, I felt like the virtual offerings, while the teachers were absolutely doing their best, um, they didn't have the resources they needed and the kids had nothing really compelling going on. And your rapid response to that was life-saving. I mean, oh, thank I, you. I, I appreciate that. I have a daughter in kindergarten, and she did not know what was happening. Obviously, none of us did. But yeah. the fact that she had somebody whose books that she liked, who was actually teaching her lessons and how to draw, was like amazing. So, what what even galvanized you to to start that? You did it so quickly. <laughs> oh man, what well, you know. You, you, probably won't believe this but my my new year's resolution was to do more webcasting and video work (laughs) (laughs) i I kid you not uh uh that you know every every year i make some sort of you know professional new year's resolution something that i I really hope to achieve in that that coming year and and i said you know i've always i've I've always played with video i've done uh, free webcasts for when a book launches uh, and uh, as as someone who's visiting schools and, and on, on a basis where I'm making an honorarium, I realize that I I can't get to all the schools. Not all of the schools can afford to have an author. So I decided that part of that New Year's resolution was to do free webcast, a free webcast once a month based on a different book, so I could hit different different age groups. And uh, and I was also going on Facebook Live once a week for you know, the caretakers and the adults and the educators. And it was more like just me slice of life talking about what happened during the week and drawing and recommending a book and taking questions live. And, and in order to achieve that new year's resolution, I realized I needed to have a space in my house that would be just for video production. And, uh, you know, cause my, where I, where you see me in draw every day with JJK is not where I actually make my books. It is a drafting table that I've, I've used to make books, and you know it's, it looks similar to, to where I actually make the books. But since I'm always working on some book that can't be publicly known just yet, uh, webcasting can be very frustrating and difficult because then you have to clear your desk, make sure there's nothing in the background that people can see. So you know, I I live here in Western Massachusetts where we have a, a finished basement and. There's a small room in the basement where I have my flat files and I had some uh, some bookshelves. And I thought, you know, I bet I could I could sort of turn this into a sort of makeshift little little studio, right? So 
So when everything was starting to shut down, I had all of that set up. You know, I had I had the lights. I had, and I'm in like this this room, which I'm actually speaking to you from now. You know, I can stand on my, I can reach my arm up and touch the ceiling. Like it's it's a tiny <laughs> it's a tiny <laughs> little room, and um, I I was you know like everyone, everything was starting to un- unravel in the beginning of March. I, I was I continued to to travel some because I thought, well. If it's not safe, like they'll tell me it's not safe, right? And um, so I was in New York City on March 1st for the Audio Awards, which is like this big, uh, it's like the Oscars of audiobooks. And, and I think of that and I think, oh my gosh, I'm, we're so lucky that that wasn't a super spreader event. And from New York, I flew to Ohio and I, and I, and I, you know, I stopped shaking hands and people sort of looked at me sideways at first. I was wearing a mask at the, the airport and people looked at me like I was crazy. And, um, but as it become became abundantly clear, like oh, I should not be traveling, and and my wife Gina and I figured, you know, they haven't called it for our kids' school, but we think we should probably pull them from school. And my last trip uh, was to Pittsburgh, and I my last event was on March 11th, and I flew home on March 12th. And, and the significance of that is that I was my hotel was just kitty corner to where Mr. Rogers filmed. His show and so you know coming back from the events or walking back to the hotel there was like this amazing reverence you have to wow like mr rogers walked through that door to go to work and and film his film his show and so when i was getting a ride to the airport on the morning of the i guess it was the morning of the 13th i suppose or some, so i was just thinking you know i need to all my school visits are going to be canceled. I'm going to have this time. And, and I was um, looking at Facebook and I saw friends who were beginning to make plans for um, homeschooling. And I saw that they had at 2 p.m. Uh, art. And I thought, well, how, you know, like they don't have necessarily have the resources to teach art. So I thought, well, I could teach art. Like I could be. I could be the special, you know, for the day of if you have art class at 2 p.m. Uh, and then as things were just rapidly unfolding, you know, by the time I landed and, and I was able to pick up my kids after school that day on the 13th, it was just so clear that things were like those, those gray storm clouds were, were approaching. And I, I have friends who are, are doctors and, and nurses and uh, I have friends who are you know, delivering bread to grocery stores. I have friends who are managing grocery stores and, and, you know, I saw that they were all working so hard to make a huge difference and make everything continue. And I thought, well, these are the skills that I have. I, I can, I can teach art. Um, I can, I can bring a sense of calm and, and you know, in these, these weird times, I could, I could create some sort of lighthearted entertainment that would also hopefully prove to be you know, very useful for, for kids who like to draw. Well, and it worked so well. I think one of the things that it also accomplished, in, in addition to all that, which it did all of those things very well, um, is that it it snowballed, right? So then you ended up with, with this pantheon of <laughs> great kids' book artists who were doing the same thing, like inspired by you. I mean, there's, you know, Mac Barnett and Nick Bruhl and everybody else just sort of jumped on that bandwagon and did the same thing. And it, it provided this phenomenal resource for people. Yeah. You know, and that's, it's no surprise that uh, in times, in times of crisis, uh, you know, 
my colleagues in children's literature step up to do something positive for the world because you know we care so much for those for those young readers and the adults that are taking care of those readers. You could you could look to any crisis that that we face as a country and you can see children's book authors and illustrators stepping up to run an auction or create some sort of programming. Although I have to say that for my kids in particular, a lot of your star power came from the fact that you were on Creative Galaxy. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a deep cut right there. Yeah, there's a show called Creative Galaxy, which for listeners don't know, it's uh, created by the people who behind uh, Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, another Mr. Rogers reference there, I guess. And uh, I was an art consultant for two season two and season three. And then so about this little alien and he, he uses art to solve problems and it's animated much like, you know, like the very same style as Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. But at the end of every 10 minute animated segment, there's a three or four minute live action segment. And I was on a few of those. So every, every now and then still, I, I will hear from people who know me from creative galaxy. I think that is so cool. Well, it's <laughs> funny because, you know, you obviously your expands, you know, now kind of middle grade skewing to young adult graphic memoir and, and all that, but like you go back down through the reading levels and you get back down through picture books, but like below that, even when you get to Creative Galaxy, like the kids grow up with like, oh my God, that's Jarrett Krasowska. Oh my God. <laughs> that's so sweet. Thank you. I love your Lunch Lady series. And I was wondering um, if if she's based on an actual Lunch Lady that you've known. She she is. And uh, inadvertently, she looks like my old Lunch Lady too. So uh, the, the whole idea for the Lunch Lady series came when I had a chance encounter with my childhood Lunch Lady. So it was uh, it was fall of 2001. My first picture book had been published. and I went to my old elementary school to present to the students. And Jeannie, the beloved Lunch Lady of my youth, was still working at the school. And we struck up a conversation and she told me all about her grandkids and uh that just, it, it, had, it blew my mind. I had never thought of her life outside of school. And suddenly now she's a, a matriarch of a family at the holiday dinner at the head of the table. And so the first version of, of Lunch Lady, it was actually a picture book. That's solely what my focus was. It was a picture book about kids who would sit at their Lunch Lady and debate what their Lunch Lady would do. So one page of the joke was, oh, no, she's an opera singer. Another page, the the joke was, she's a taxi driver. And then on one of the pages, it said, oh, no, she's secretly a spy. Uh, and so that one-off joke on one page became the basis for the whole series. So that was 2001. And the, the first book, was Lunch Lady, was published in 2009, summer of 2009. So it, it, had a, it had to percolate for a number of years before it was ready. And... Uh, I invited my old lunch lady, Jeannie, and I hadn't, you know, seen her since I was a kid, since that that run in in two thousand one, and I was so taken aback about the resemblance between the character and the person, and I think that's because whatever whatever we know from childhood, that will be forever what that thing is, right? So whether that be the phys ed teacher, the, the cafeteria workers, the first grade teacher, you know, I've I've over the almost 20 year career that I've had, I've visited thousands of elementary schools, but still when I sit down to draw an elementary school classroom, it looks like the school I grew up attending. Well, what did she think of it? The resemblance? 
Oh, she was so tickled. I mean, um, she was signing books at, at, the, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the first reading, and uh, she she was signing books up until the point where when um, she was in hospice care, signing signing copies of the books for the nurses. That's that's incredibly sweet. Yeah, um, yeah, she loved it. I mean, she, I mean, it really elevated her in a way that she, she didn't expect. So how did you decide to make the transition to um, sequential art, particularly with that story? But um, what yeah, inspired so you in general? Yeah, so I, I always made comics, right? As a kid, I always made comics. Um, but as, as, a, as, a, as a teenager growing up in the 90s, I didn't seem like a viable option to make comics because then the only the only paths I saw for making comics would be to um, you know draw for a, a company's character, right? So if I, I I love Batman and X Men, but so like to me that was oh, I had to work at Marvel or DC, and that was one of the only options. Um, I was also making comic strips. I, when I was in ninth grade, I submitted a comic strip to, to national syndicates to try to get it published. Um, and then I, I made a comic the summer after my senior year of high school. I had a comic strip in my local paper, and I quickly learned that I, to generate that many ideas was just near impossible. So when I was a senior in high school, my art teacher brought in some picture books to share with me, and I fell in love with the format of picture books. So Went to art school, was gung-ho about picture books, getting picture books out there. Um, when, I w- when I was living uh, just outside of Boston in Somerville, Massachusetts, then I would walk down the street to Harvard Square in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to this little comic book store called The Million Year Picnic. And they had this little section that had nothing to do with superheroes, and it was just uh, memoir and independently published comics. And that kept comics alive for me. I continued to read those comics through the early aughts. And um, like I had mentioned, Lunch Lady was initially a picture book. And then I quickly realized that it wasn't a picture book because the story got so much longer. I tried writing it as a chapter book. And that didn't work out because um, the story was so visual. But it it wasn't until I revisited a comic that I drew in fifth grade. So I was, uh, I was invited to be a part of a, an anthology that John Cheska put together. And he invited us to take some old artwork or old stories and reflect on them or update them. And I found this comic called Lightning Man that I wrote and drew in fifth grade. And I never finished the story in fifth grade. So as an adult, I didn't. And then I, as I was making that comic, I remembered how much I loved comics. And so I put Lunch Lady together as, as a comic, as a graphic novel. And, and to give you a historical perspective of how long ago this was, when I put together the, the submission package to my editor at my publisher, I wrote about it on my MySpace blog. <laughs> so this would have been 2004. <laughs> you know, and I wish that blog still existed so I could just have a screenshot of it, but uh, <laughs> it's gone forever. Uh, so... And and my editor at Random House, who published all of, all of my picture books like Punk Farm and Baghead, they just weren't sure, confident that graphic novels were would, would be viable. You know, it's so much more expensive to print, uh, 
and then what would the price point be? I mean, basically, they didn't have a business model. Whenever an editor picks up a book, they have to run profit and loss statement to their supervisors that says, this is how much it would cost us to produce the book and make it, and this is what we think, how many copies we might sell. Uh, and so they had it for about a year until, in the interim, then I, I got an agent. I, I didn't have a literary agent before, and, and she believed in Lunch Lady, and she said, okay, I'm going to inform your, your editor that if she doesn't like it, I'm going to start sharing it with other publishers. So they, they picked it up in 2005, and then I was I worked on it. I finished the first book, and then they decided they wanted to publish the first two books at the same time. And then, so then I created that. So originally, they, Lunch Lady was going to be published in 2008, but they held it to 2009 so they could launch it with, with two books at the same time. So did cost dictate that it, it became a three-color book? That's exactly it, yes. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, Random House had, had also picked up Baby Mouse. Their production team figured out how to put those books out. Because essentially, too, they're going to be putting out a couple books per year. It has to be priced at a point in which it's going to be accessible. Uh, they didn't want to price people out of the book. And so with a, with a limited color palette, you know, the, I think the, the initial retail cost was $5.99. And then over the years, it had to go up to $6.99 because of the cost of inflation and paper and shipping and gas and all that stuff. So, uh, and so when it came to decide on the signature color for the series, we, we quickly came upon that yellow inspired by that iconic dishwashing rubber glove. <laughs> well, I, um, I'm going to, you've probably heard this before, and it's a, a grown-up perspective on Lunch Lady, but I love that it's a, it's a, a work, like a working class hero. You know, like she is, she is not someone, or she's in a position of so, that usually people don't associate with any kind of power. And, um, you know, I just think it's great that it's a way to show kids that everyone around them is a person with a history and with talents and um, stuff like that. I, I don't know. That's what I, I responded to. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, that's totally part of you know initially it was initially just that one-off joke of haha how funny it's a lunch lady who fights crime um but then you know as i travel the country i would stop and at schools just chat with the, the teams in the lunch rooms and you know just learning so much more about what they do and their humanity uh was just as much as i put into it as, as the silliness mm -hmm. yeah because i mean if they're not there and they're not working as hard as they do i mean there's not there's not meals. And that's something, of course, that we've seen with the pandemic. You know, um, there's been it's been thrown in high relief who actually are heroes. And, um, you know, you were there first with the lunch lady one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they they uh, didn't miss the beat and figured out ways to continue to feed the kids, even if the kids weren't coming into the school building. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing that now in my school district still. They're, uh, they figured out a way to feed the kids lunch and breakfast every day, even if they're not coming into school. So I assume that the, uh, the success of Lunch Lady probably was part of the inspiration to do a, a bigger graphic novel? No, uh, Hey Kiddo precedes Lunch Lady. Yeah, no, I, I started thinking about what would become Hey Kiddo 
before my first book was even published. Um, I've always been a fan of memoir and learning how people have sort of came to be. And, um, you know, I, I was reading a lot of David Sedaris then, as, as I do now. But so I really looked at, oh, I'm getting this book published. Like that's, there's the happy ending for this kid who had such a tumultuous childhood. And, uh, you know, I w wasn't emotionally ready to write it then. Uh, it took a lot of years of growth. But throughout making the art for, for Lunch Lady, I would then, on a separate piece of paper, start doodling, you know, what my grandparents and I would look like as, as characters in a graphic novel and wanting to give it a different vibe too, like artistically, like it wouldn't be like lunch lady is meant to be very crisp and controlled lines. And, and, and the memoir work is, is meant to be more um, sort of loose and emotional. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, the, the coloring that you used, is it watercolor? It is ink washes and a digital brush that recreates the watercolor. So uh, it's done on, on a whole bunch of different layers. So there's a physical piece of paper with line work on it. There's a separate physical piece of paper with ink washes on it. Those get scanned and combined in Photoshop. And then in other separate layers in Photoshop, I'm using, I put in the orange with the digital watercolor brush and uh, a, a, a digital Conti crayon for, for the whites. I, yeah, I was just revisiting it um, last night. I, I was really curious about that. So thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to be able to uh, have it look painterly, but still uh, have a lot of control over where things went at the same time. And so your, um, your upcoming book uh, from next summer, Sunshine, that takes place, like a, it's, from what I understand, because obviously we haven't read it yet, it's uh, a companion book that takes place during a week that happens sort of within Hey Kiddo. Yes, yeah. You can read up to page 262 of Hey Kiddo. Stop. And then read all 200-something pages of Sunshine. And then come back and read the last 20-odd uh, pages of, of Hey Kiddo. That's awesome. <laughs> Is Sunshine in a similar artistic style? Yes, uh, with with the inclusion of uh, the color yellow. It was originally a chapter in Hey Kiddo, which uh, was just a chapter that kept getting longer and, and sort of out of control, and it just it, it needed to be its own story because it, it certainly has its own narrative arc. Uh, so, so what was once a, a chapter in Hey Kiddo just became a couple of uh, pages in Hey Kiddo that just kind of summarizes the events to some degree, and then now there's whole other 200 something page graphic memoir <laughs> i think i read in a in an article in publishers weekly where you discussed that and um it was your editor david levithan that encouraged you to do that it was i mean he he saw that you know there were there was so much going on in this one week of camp uh, but that that one week of camp had a profound impact on what what sent me to to meet uh and reach out to my father, which, which we needed for Hey Kiddo. So, so he said you could kind of, for the sake of of, of of this memoir, you can you could put that down to two pages for this, for that story moment. Uh, but there's there's so much of the story that needs to be its its own its own book. Uh, and he did he did say early on he said you know don't don't write this book, meaning what would become Hey Kiddo, 
like it's your only chance ever to write about your life or these people. You know, you have to still have to focus in on what is this story and what is the through line of the story. And uh, that was the best piece of advice he could have ever given me. Well, I loved Hey Kiddo, and I can't wait to read Sunshine, so I'm betting that he was correct in that assessment. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm curious. Uh, hey Kiddo is, in, you know, I, I know people have told you it's incredibly brave, and um, and you do a great job of approaching very tough topics that other, that you went through, of course, but that other kids have gone through and are going through. Um, what were the graphic memoirs that you read that gave you the, I guess, the courage or the bravery to do that story? Sure. I, uh, growing up, I took classes at the Worcester Art Museum, and our teacher, Mark Lynch, would always bring in non-superhero comics for us to look at. So Harvey Picard's American Splendor, and uh, our Spiegelman books, and those those books taught me that there could be something outside of you know, super-powered beings in spandex. And when I was going to the Millionaire Picnic, I came across uh, Blankets by Craig Thompson, mm-hmm. which is just uh, an amazing, powerful book. And uh, Jeffrey Brown, had you know, he got his start by writing... These- <laughs> Sorry, I love those books so much. Oh, his, his memoirs are intense. Unlikely and... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, wow, they're so incredibly vulnerable yeah uh, so so between between reading the david sedaris and and seeing these, these graphic memoirs and very early odds that's what led me down the path to to say this is a i have a story to tell and it needs to be told as a comic you know um i could have not, not only was i not emotionally ready to to publish a graphic memoir then you know i don't i don't think the landscape of publishing would have would have been ready for it either because you know we really needed smile by Raina telgemeier in 2010 was it 2010 or 2009 at, at, it was 2009 2010 that that was a big game changer you know so graphics started publishing uh, their books in 2005 right? and they started off with bone and even even when they had Raina's first babysitters of books they they weren't in color, they were just black and white. It wasn't even grayscale; it was just black and white. And um, you know, the success of Smile allowed other publishers, encouraged other publishers to say, "What about CC Bell's story? You know, what about El Defo? What about you know all of uh, you know everything that we're all doing is compounding on everything that came before us." Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if, if blankets had never been around, you know, I, I go back to if Arch Beagleman didn't get Mouse out there. Craig Thompson wouldn't have been able to do blankets. You know, Raina Smile would have been on the Gene Yang's American Born Chinese wouldn't have been out there. And then the stickers that, that Gene and Raina racked up on the covers of their books, as well as the, the, the thousands upon thousands of readers, you know, I'll, allow us to now then have New Kid by Jerry Kraft and allow uh, me to put out a Hey Kiddo. And I, I can't wait to see how this, can, this ripple effect will continue to go into future generations. Because I'm even thinking of if I didn't think there were many possibilities in the 90s, like imagine what kids could think of now, what they could create. And then I saw that you're um, 
because you're doing a an origin series now too. I you know what this little small studio I I just on one side of the room I have the driver they desk with you know the, the bookshelves and on the other half of the room I I have <laughs> I have a little uh, lasered school background uh, taped over where I store framed artwork. And I just, I turn the ring light around and I turn the microphone around and I go on that side of the room to, to <laughs> interview graphic novelists and a whole, whole show, different web show with a whole different vibe. I, I love the description I read of that before you started it. It sounded to me like, like a young adult graphic novel version of comedians in cars getting coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Oh, no, a little bit is. I mean. Uh, I, I was able to interview Mike Corrado in person and socially distance in my backyard. Uh, and I, just the same, I am loving the, the interviews I'm getting to do with my friends over a video. But, man, it would be so much fun to be able to, to do it in a coffee shop <laughs> driving around, <laughs> or just sketching while we're sitting in the park or something. And I, I, So I figured it was dry every day initially. It was like, hey, I'm going to do this every day for two weeks. <laughs> and then after <laughs> after two weeks, you're like, Okay, uh, we're in this for a little bit longer. I'll do it every day for a little bit longer. And then, um, you know, and then I went down to like four episodes or three or four episodes a week. And even that got to be a lot. And and then after uh, the summer, I gave myself time to just regroup, Uh, you know, totally like had so much PTSD from from everything that had been going on and uh, brought draw every back, draw, draw every day back as a twice a week show uh but as i wanted to and you know initially i did drive every day for everybody right like anybody you're looking for me to do uh but then it became so clear that the main audience would be the lunch lady readers the jedi academy readers and so i wanted to allow myself to just get a little sillier and weirder on that show um but then you know i wanted to create something that would could be used and would be of interest uh, for teen readers. And that's that's and that was a big driver for creating origin stories, aside from the fact that I, I do miss my friends. I miss talking to them. Uh, and I also really love getting into how people came to be. I you, the list of people you have coming on is just incredible. And, um, you know, you, Mike Caruto, um, of course, and then Maya Kobabe, um and. Uh, Jean Luen Yang. I'm I'm drawing a blank. Raul the Third. Raul the Third is coming on and Lucy Nicely and Nate Powell, Andrew Aiden. And um yeah, no, I, I figured if I could, you know, if I could create a cap, right? Instead of saying, I'm gonna do this every week until forever, I, I it would be daunting. So okay, if I could pick ten friends, you know, ten graphics I not only not a, just friends, I mean, because there are some people I haven't met yet because uh, the shutdown prevented us from becoming friends in real life, like Robin Ha, who, uh, if you haven't read Almost American Girl yet, I highly encourage that you do so. It's such a powerful graphic memoir about her coming to the States when she was 11 from Korea. And, um, and yeah, no, it's it, that just feels so much more manageable to say, I'm going to do one per week and it'll be 10. And, uh, you know... Odds, odds are I'll come, probably come back and whether I do it in the spring or in the fall again. We'll, we'll see. Well, and then for um, people who don't know, who are listening, who are wondering about Draw Every Day, you're continuing the two episodes a week through December. Is that right? Through December. And then uh, we'll take another little extended break. And, you know, I'll probably 
bring it back again as like a once a week thing. Uh, you know, even even with with deadlines and now back to school, even even two per week seems uh, like a lot. But I'll tell you this though, I I was traveling so much pre-pandemic that even putting out filming and producing and editing two episodes of Dragar Every Day and one episode of Origin Stories per week, that's still less time than I spent traveling to my speaking engagements. Right? Like, so, you know, I live in Western Mass. I, I mean, I'd have school visits every week somewhere. You know, I might be driving two and a half hours in the morning and then two and a half hours in the afternoon on a Tuesday. And on a Thursday, I might be driving an hour and a half to the airport, flying to Texas, being there for a couple days, you know, and then flying home. And then so so still like the amount of hours that I spent per week traveling is still significantly more than I'm spending creating this online content. So silver lining, you know, I mean, I think we we have to we have to grab onto whatever silver linings we can find in this chaos and mess. For me, that's that's one of mine. Um, we do love to ask people if they have a favorite Newberry book. You know, I never thought about, you know, what is my favorite Newberry book? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to say New Kid by Jerry Craft because, you know, it was a win for, for Jerry and he just made it a win for all of us who've been making graphic novels, which goes to, to my earlier statement of, uh, we're we're all building on top of what we're creating, and and I was so th- thrilled and overjoyed when 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 Jerry won because I know I knew there was a lot of talk, but you know talk online does not always equal that that phone call in the morning, and I'm so happy that he got that phone call. That's great. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast, where we spoke with Jarrett Krasowska. For more information on his work, you can check out his website or our show notes at newberrytart.com, particularly for links to his Draw Every Day with JJK webcast or the 10-episode series of Origin Stories. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.